Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Oh, please, please, please. Please answer, will you, Mr. Robeson? What is the Communist Party? What do you mean by that? Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Would you like Party? to come to the ballot box when I vote and take out the ballot and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question. You are directed to answer the question. I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget it. I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question whether, if he gave us a truthful answer, he would be supplying information which might be used against him in a criminal proceeding. You are directed to answer, Mr. Robson. In the first place, wherever I have been in the world, the first to die in the struggle against fascism were the communists. I laid many wreaths upon the graves of communists. That is not criminal. You said, Mr. Robeson, and I quote, I belong to the American resistance movement, which fights against American imperialism, just as the resistance movement fought against Hitler. Just like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman were underground railroaders and fighting for our freedom, you bet your life. I have to insist that you listen to these questions. I am listening. I quote further, why should the Negroes ever fight against the only nation in the world where racial discrimination is prohibited and where the people can live freely? Never. They will never fight against either the Soviet Union or the people's democracies, close quote. Did you make that statement? I do not remember, but what is perfectly clear today is that 900 million people, other colored people, have told you they will not. 400 million in India and millions everywhere have told you the that. This is after the question. He doesn't need to make a speech. Did you write an article that was published in the USSR Information Bulletin? Yes. Quote, I want to emphasize that only here in the Soviet Union did I feel that I was a real man with a capital M, close quote. Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in 1934... Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in Did 1934... In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. Well, I do not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave. And my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you. And no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. I am here because I'm opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. While you were in Moscow, Mr. Robeson, did you make a speech lauding Stalin? I can't remember. Have you recently changed what your mind about Stalin? To Stalin, gentlemen is a question for the Soviet Union, and I won't argue with a representative of the people who, in building America, wasted the lives of my people. You are responsible, you and your forebears, for 60 to 100 million black people dying in the slave ships and on the plantations. Don't you ask me about anybody. Please. I'm sure you wouldn't want to discuss with us the slave labor camps in the Nothing Soviet Union. Nothing could more on slavery than this society, I assure you. I would invite your attention to the Daily Worker of June 29, 1949, with reference to a get-together with you and Ben Davis, formerly communist councilman in New York. Do you know Ben One Davis? One of my dearest friends. He is as patriotic an American as can be. And you, gentlemen, are the non-patriots. Just a minute. You are the un-American. The hearing is now adjourned. I think it should be. I've been doing all of this that I can. Can I read my statement? No! The meeting is adjourned. It should be.
My name is Brian Gigantino, and welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. You just heard the June 12, 1956 testimony of singer, actor, and lifelong communist Paul Robeson before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Paul Robeson was just one of many black communists and fellow travelers in the United States who felt an affinity with the Soviet Union. To them, the USSR represented the antithesis of America and its white nationalist foundations. Such a view was shared by the likes of the Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes and the esteemed intellectual, activist, and author W.E.B. Du Bois, as well as many others. But this affinity was not without reason. The Soviet Union lent real support, both materially and rhetorically, to the struggles of black people in America. In the 1920s, when lynchings, imprisonment, and segregation were facts of daily life in the United States, the highest ranks of the Soviet Union pushed the then-largely-white Communist Party of the United States of America to make the so-called Negro question a centerpiece of its political program. This led to an expansion of membership among black people in America. The USSR also made the conditions of African Americans central to its public admonishment of the United States from the 1920s to throughout the Cold War. The Soviet exposure of the horrors of American racism on an international stage played an important role in supporting and empowering black political struggles in the United States. Most famously, in the 1931 Scottsboro Boys case, where nine young black men in Alabama were wrongly accused of raping two white women, the Soviet Union made their case the center of a global political campaign domestically and across continents. This mobilized communists in the United States and elsewhere to not only support these wrongly accused young men, but to use their case as a radical indictment of race in America and America itself. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, who is not only one of my favorite historians, but who boasts a long career of pro prolific scholarship. He has written a biography of Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, as well as a biography about the black communist lawyer William Patterson, who worked on the Scottsboro Boys case. We discuss with Dr. Gerald Horn the relationship between the Soviet Union, the communist world, and the struggle for black liberation in the United States. Okay, Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you so much for joining us on Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so you, could you just please give us an introduction? Who are you and what do you, what do you do? So I'm a professor at the University of Houston, Texas, USA. I used to teach at UC, University of California, Santa Barbara. I used to teach at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, I received my PhD in history of Columbia University in New York, law degree from University of California, Berkeley. I've been a political activist, a labor lawyer, uh, et cetera. 
So, uh, Dr. Horn, one of the you know first questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, your uh, many studies, uh, many books that you've written, I think over 30 books, uh, a number of them focus on the relationship between the Soviet Union um, and Black struggle in the United States, and in particular, the role that internationalizing um, the Black struggle in the United States had in making it um, effective. So I'm wondering if you could just, you know, very briefly uh, talk about what role did the Soviet Union, generally speaking, play in the, you know, development of Black uh, revolutionary politics in the United States and to another degree, civil rights politics in general in the United States in the 20th century? It's fair to say that the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, was not only a landmark in world history, it was a landmark in terms of the history of the United States. What's striking about Black people in the United States in particular is how so often our destiny has improved because of events external to the United States. Uh, for example, if you look at the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, uh, a successful revolt of the enslaved, this helped to ignite a general crisis of the entire slave system, which could only be resolved with its collapse, which it did in the United States by 1865. If you look at the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, you will see that that helped to shift the global discourse, and particularly the United States discourse, away from religion and, quote, race, unquote, to class. And by shifting the discourse to class, this helped to elevate the prominence of Black people who are mostly working class in the United States, overwhelmingly working class, and it also led to a reexamination of our history in the United States through the lens and the prism of class, because the status of being an enslaved person is the most cruel and draconian aspect of class exploitation. I should also say that the Soviet Union then began to attract uh, Black luminaries not only uh, Black people such as the man whose biography I wrote, William Patterson, who came to Moscow to be trained as a revolutionary, wound up, wound up learning Russian, by the way, and he was not alone. Uh, there were Black people, not only from the United States, but throughout the Pan-African world, who came to Moscow to be trained. And what's interesting as well is how Patterson in particular, and the Soviet Union in general, began to intervene in U.S. racist politics. Uh, your listeners or viewers may be familiar with the Scottsboro case. Uh, circa 1931 in Alabama, where nine Black youth are arrested on false and spurious charges of supposed molestation of two-year-old American women, like many black men before and since, they were on the fast track to being executed. However, with the organizing of the International Labor Defense here in the United States, which had ties to the Communist International and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, a worldwide campaign on behalf of the Scottsboro Nine was launched. There were nine defendants, by the way. And there, this involved demonstrations at U.S. missions and legations and embassies and consulates all over the world. 
boycotts of U.S. corporations, it was not unlike the anti-apartheid campaign of the 1980s, which also implicated the Soviet Union and its allies, by the way, which led to the election of Nelson Mandela in 1994 as the first democratically elected president in South Africa. However, the Scottsboro case then led to an agonizing retreat from the more horrible aspects of U.S. apartheid, U.S. racism, or Jim Crow, as it was called, because of this international pressure. Uh, this international pressure reaches a crescendo circa 1950-1951, when once again, William Patterson, in league with his close friend and comrade, the great Paul Robeson, who, by the way, spoke Russian and uh, spent uh, many, many days and weeks and months uh, in the former Soviet Union, he had his son uh, go to school in the Soviet Union because he did not want his son exposed to US-style racism. And his son, of course, also spoke Russian. So they filed this petition at the United Nations, 1950-1951, charging the United States with genocide against Black people. Uh, this puts the United States in a very uncomfortable position and you begin to see more agonizing steps away from the more horrible aspects of U.S. apartheid, U.S. Jim Crow. But the price to be paid was that Patterson was jailed, Robeson's career was curtailed. But the bottom line is that Jim Crow, U.S. apartheid, began to retreat, not least because of assistance from the Soviet Union and its global allies. You know, I was uh, interested in this dual dynamic, how not only was the Soviet pressure at the highest rungs, uh, something which helped empower uh, the demands uh, of the civil rights movement and black struggle in America, but also in terms of how activists in the Communist Party of the United States were um, sort of pressured by the common turn in 1928 to start taking um, racism within the party more seriously. So very often, of course, there's this narrative um, that the right would use to say that the Communist Party is being, you know, is the, is the puppet of the Soviet Union, or even liberals might, you know, critique the um, uh, Communist Party in the United States in the early part of the 20th century as being a, uh, you know, puppet of the Soviet Union. But in fact, there's, as you've written in your book on William Patterson, there's this dynamic where the Soviet pressure actually pushes the Communist Party of the United States. The common turn pushes the Communist Party of the United States to have a much more advanced uh, position in terms of race and Black workers. And I'm curious if you could just talk about that dynamic, the, the, the ways in which the common turn was this positive force in sort of advancing Black politics within the Communist Party. Well, a theme of our talk is that because racism, anti-Black racism, white supremacy was so deeply entrenched, and indeed your viewers and listeners may want to look at one of my recent books, which deals with the 16th century, going back to the historic roots of how and why it is that this phenomenon this phenomenon, this pestilence is so deeply entrenched 
And because it's so deeply entrenched, it oftentimes required external pressure in order to move away from this pestilence. And part of that external pressure in the 20th century was precisely pressure from the Communist International, which by the way, was able to take advantage of fertile minds from all over the world. For example, uh, one of the major formulators of common term policy was a man of Japanese origin known as Sen Katayama, sometimes Katayama Sen, uh, S-E-N, Katayama, K-A-T-A-Y-A-M-A, who was born in Japan and helped to found the Communist Party of Japan, helped to found the Communist Party of the United States, helped to found the Communist Party of Mexico. And he was highly respected within the ranks of the Comintern. And he knew the Black situation having lived in the United States of America. So I think that this uh, anti-communist trope that you've cited, which portrays the US Communist Party as somehow a puppet of Moscow, uh, portrays Moscow as interfering in the domestic affairs of the United States of America, I, I think it's overdone. And in any case, if you want to talk about interference in internal affairs, let's talk about US imperialism for a moment. Uh, let's talk about uh, seeking to overthrow the Cuban revolution, for example. Let's talk about the blockade against Cuba, for example. Let's talk about the fact that as we speak in Washington, there is serious discussion, believe it or not, of launching a war against the People's Republic of China. I kid you not. This is a, a very serious matter because the United States does not like the path that China is pursuing. So they're threatening to blow up the world. I mean, so once again, I think we're learning a very bitter lesson right now in the United States, because right now there is not as much external pressure on the United States as there had been historically. And so what's happening? There's backsliding. I mean, you have all these police killings of black people, for example. You have a couple of trials going on right now as we speak where uh, black men were killed by white vigilantes and the vigilantes will probably not be punished. There is not as much external pressure and therefore the United States is retreating. And I make a plea to our friends in Georgia in particular, given the fact that the United States uh, intervenes and interferes so much in your internal affairs, I think our friends in Georgia should not necessarily act similarly, but certainly should act in solidarity uh, with uh, the besieged brothers and sisters, the besieged comrades here in North America. There's one question I had that I came across in your William Patterson book I wanted to ask you about um, that I thought was really interesting. That's more about the internal dynamics of like a uh, the communist party that I thought was really fascinating. You bring up this point that um, when the 1950, when the de-Stalinization started and um, the uprising in Hungary happened and 1956 <laughs> came to communism, that there were these black communists who were more willing to stay in the party while droves of people were leaving. And I thought that this was a really interesting point. I was wondering if you could just like 
not only talk about that, because to me, that was like, you know, there's this narrative amongst the left that's like 1956 is the betrayal, but actually your re-narrativization is like, there was an understanding based on their experience of the importance of the Soviet Union, that there was no possible way their struggle could continue without in some way relating to the Soviet Union in a, in a strategic way. Well, yes, I, I think there are many reasons for that phenomenon that you just sketched. One is that many of these black communists didn't have that many options, for example. Uh, leave the party and do what, <laughs> I mean, for example. I mean, the ruling class has a long memory. They don't tend to be afflicted with amnesia. And they would hold against these black communists the fact that they were associated with Stalin, associated with the communist party. So that's one aspect. But another aspect is what you just mentioned, which is having taking a, a, a longer view for example, and trying to be more objective, for example. I mean, to cite a personal example, right now in the ranks, not only, I don't think I'm talking out of school. I don't think I'm revealing any secrets to say that uh, right now in, not only in the communist party, but in the broader left general, generally, there is not unanimity of opinion about this critique of the founding of the United States as a slave-holding republic bent upon dispossession of the indigenous population and enhancing and increasing slavery. I think that there are many Europeans who, let's face it, they were saved from barbarism by escaping to the United States of America. Uh, certainly that, that was the case in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, people would have been massacred if they had stayed in Europe. And so it's important for a person like myself to understand that, that even if they're communists, they still have this sort of debt of gratitude to the United States for rescuing them and their families from the furnaces, from the genocide. And so it's oftentimes difficult for them to move to this sharp critique, even though they're supposed to look at matters objectively <laughs> and are not supposed to be ensnared by philosophical idealism. Whereas just on a subjective level, a person like myself from a slavery background who grew up with my parents telling me stories about the horrors of Mississippi, the horrors of being black in Mississippi, how they had to step off the sidewalk if a person defined as white was coming in their direction. They had to step off the sidewalk into the gutter. You're not supposed to look them in the eye. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because if you look them in the eye, I guess that means that you consider yourself equal. So you can get killed if you look them in the face. So th these are the sorts of stories that I grew up with. So I, I, have a, I have a different point of view. I mean, that subjective reality then shapes your objective viewpoint. And so that, that's, that's really one of the problems that we face right now in the United States, which is that uh, the right wing, of course, is united. <laughs> They're united on the idea that this is the greatest country ever, that the founding ideals were great. Anything that's contrary to that is an exception. 
is inconsistent with the founding ideals, and that includes slavery, for example, that includes genocide. Those are all exceptions. And I'm afraid to say that many of the people we're aligning with in the left have a similar point of view. It, it's, it's a real problem right now. It's a real problem. That's a great point. Yeah, mm. I, yeah, I think so. Like, I actually, you know, learning about the labor movement in the U.S., reading about it, and I also was a labor organizer in the U.S. Um, what was really interesting is that the reason there could never be like a working class, you know, revolution was that whenever they would reach like a pinnacle of like strength, the workers, like unions, there was always this land they could just sort of go to. And so they often would like go west and they could claim huge swaths of land that were really cheap. And so, um, you know, at the cost of Native Americans and so on and so on. But this, the, the hugeness of the U.S., like physical territory and ability to, to have so much land constantly worked against any sort of, um, the, you know, um, victories that the working class had in the centers, right? Because it's like I look at and it's very similar in this way here, but it's slightly different. It's like, you know, organizing workers in Georgia, you get them and you, you work really hard. But no matter how much they could win at the workplace here, they could just straight up just go immigrate to Europe and they would get triple the salary there, you know, or maybe quadruple or even 20 times. So it's like really hard for them. We can't keep them here. And the best and the brightest workers are actually the ones that work, they, they fight here, but then they're smart enough to then go and do better there, you know? So I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, my God, it's like the East Coast, like workers, like organizing, yet constantly being able to, whenever they can, go and get land and like settle and, you know, homestead or whatever they do. No, believe it or not, I was just reading a manuscript a proposed book by Marxist intellectuals who were praising the Homestead Act, which is in the 1860s, where the US government basically takes land from Native Americans and parcels it out to these Europeans. And I said, you know, how, how could they praise that? I mean, what, what, what about the poor Native Americans? I mean, they don't count. Um, what was like the significance of say like 1930s, like Harlem or 1920s Harlem? Was there like anything that you could maybe say that would be of interest? Because I think that was like a, a melting pot for all these politics sort of to take place. Well, sure. I mean, for, first of all, as, as you know, New York City is the most popular city in the United States. And it's also the most diverse, not only in terms of people of Asian descent, European descent, from Latin America, et cetera, but also the black population. You have a substantial Caribbean, Jamaican, Barbadian, Trinidadian population. So the black population is, is very diverse. And so many of the folks from the islands, the Caribbean islands, they come from like Jamaica is about 98% black. And so they were not as accustomed to this raw and rancid white supremacy that they encountered in New York City. And were oftentimes more prone to rebel against it. And that helps to infuse the black ranks of the communist party. For example, you probably know 
about this pre-communist formation, the African Blood Brotherhood, which is disproportionately comprised of folks from the Caribbean. And these are some of the earliest entrants into the US Communist Party who were black were people from the Caribbean. As a matter of fact, in the current issue of the American Historical Review, which is a leading historical journal, uh, there is an article that deals with this. Um, and it, it focuses on Claude McKay, uh, who was a noted black writer of this period of the 1920s and 1930s in Harlem, but actually was from Jamaica, for example. So that's really what helps to make New York unique. And it also, I've noticed, helps to make the black population of New York less prone towards anti-immigrant thinking. Now, I'm afraid to say that in other black communities in the United States, uh, for example, I have a lot of dealings with Los Angeles. I do a radio program in Los Angeles. And the black population there is mostly from the deep South of the United States. And they're living cheek by jowl with people of Mexican origin, El Salvadorian origin, et cetera. And this, along with the overriding atmosphere can help to induce anti-immigrant thinking. You usually don't have that in New York because most of the people are from immigrant backgrounds, the black people, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Antigua, Bahamas, Haiti, Bermuda, the list is long. There's this great new documentary. I think it's, uh, I forgot the name, but I think talking about trees, like a Bertolt Brecht uh, line, and it's in Sudan. And there's these three filmmakers. Uh, one of them had studied in Russia, in Moscow, I think. One of them had studied in GDR to make films. And there was like the Islamic dictatorship for like 30 years and all cinemas were banned. And so they can't like show films. And so the whole thing is them um, trying to uh, show films that have been banned uh, and set up this something called revolution cinema. And so Soviet Union used to, that had been transformed to something else now, like a mosque or something. And I can't recall, or it was like just closed down. But it was really amazing because they were these sort of these three intrepid um, film lovers and filmmakers trying to bring back cinema first underground and reopen the Soviet cinemas that had been built that had been closed down because they were like, you know, to whatever secular or so on. Um, haram, maybe I'm not sure some, you know, some kind of uh, uh, it's fundamentalist Islamic like against it. But that was like an incredible film in the sense that if these, the, out of the three, two of them had not been educated in Soviet Union or, or Eastern Bloc, they would have not had that chance to be even filmmakers. And then two, Soviet Union was the one building these, these cinemas for people, you know, to be exposed to film that they, didn't, they wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, and that how they had been gone, you know, there's no connection. He's there's this one scene where one of the um, one of the filmmakers calls Moscow and he's asking for his film that he had made like 40 years ago or something, if they had a copy of it. And I think they like, think they do find his copy and send it to him. And he speaks Russian, which was kind of incredible. And he had some ties, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that showed like how those kinds of uh, you know Soviet Union provide many kinds of things not just like straight up political education but you know arts you know having access to things 
universities, uh, skill sets that uh, that some people would just never be able to get otherwise um, with the way, you know, the sort of European colonialism had separated the world. And so like maybe like examples like that would be uh, helpful for our listeners. Well, first of all, you may be familiar with Patrice Lumumba University, which was inaugurated in the Soviet Union some decades ago with the express mission of educating those, particularly in the formerly colonized world, whose education had been ignored by the European colonial powers, speaking of Britain, France, and Portugal in the first instance. And the Patrice Lumumba University was trying to compensate uh, for that flaw. Although what's interesting is that the daughter, the aforementioned William Patterson, the black communist who's trained in Moscow and speaks Russian and becomes a leader of the human rights movement in the United States, his daughter was trained as a physician at Patrice Lumumba University. So it was not just uh, students from Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, Asia. Also, if you look at my book, A White Supremacy Confronted, which deals with US imperialism in Southern Africa, uh, you will note that I did a quite a bit of research in the archives of the African National Congress of South Africa at Fort Herod University, uh, which is not that far from Durban on the uh, Indian Ocean coast, happens to be the alma mater of Nelson Mandela. And if you dig into the records of the ANC, what you'll find is that the ANC would not have been able to survive without maximum assistance, not only from the Soviet Union, I should say, but particularly from the GDR, the, the former German Democratic Republic, uh, East Germany, for example. Many of their publications, for example, were published in the GDR, for example. Uh, many of their cadre were trained in the GDR, for example. I don't recall any of their cadre being trained in Soviet Georgia, but it would not surprise me if that were the case. I should also say that on a level of generalization, what's important about 1917, once again, is that it helps to shift the political axis globally towards the question of class. For example, in the United States, even though there had been a working class movement, inevitably the working class movement in the United States was handicapped and handcuffed by the pestilence of racism, by the pestilence of having within its ranks a persecuted class of formerly enslaved people. And you had many unions that did not want to incorporate black people into their ranks which obviously weakened the union when it came to negotiating and confronting the boss, the employer class, the capitalist class, if you will. Uh, with the onset of the Bolshevik revolution, the spawning of communist parties, you see this fierce counterattack against race and racism and the elevation of the question of class which then leads to the strengthening of unions in the United States. Um, as a matter of fact, you can make an argument that unions in the United States were strengthened in the 1930s when the Communist Party of the United States was at its peak of strength, having about 80,000 members by 1939, for example. And that the union movement in the United States has hardly grown since. 
since that period, since the time when the Communist Party was at its maximum of strength. And this is not only true with regard to the decentering of the question of race, it also has something to do with decentering the question of religion as well. In your remarks, you mentioned the notion of so-called Islamic fundamentalism. And in recent weeks, months, decades, we have had a real life experiment with regard to this particular phenomenon. Recall that during the administration of former US President Jimmy Carter in the 1970s, his Polish American advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, an anti-communist, thought it would be wise to support the so-called Islamic fundamentalists, these religious zealots in Afghanistan, for example, in order to weaken a left-leaning government in Kabul, Afghanistan, in order to attract a Soviet intervention that would then weaken the Soviet Union. Now, that's precisely what happened, but of course, it backfired spectacularly because these religious zealots on September 11, 2001, attacked New York and Washington, leading to the deaths of thousands of US citizens, in addition to non-US citizens as well, that led to a US intervention that climaxed just a month or two ago with the religious zealots surging back to power. And I'm not even sure what the next chapter in this story will be, although we know thus far that it has been a spectacular failure of US foreign policy, precisely because there was a decision to make an alliance with these religious zealots against the interests of the socialist camp, for example. Also with regard to this phenomenon, I should say that historians in the United States generally agree that one of the major reasons why anti-Jewish fervor in the United States began to retreat in recent decades, one of the major reasons, of course, is because anti-Black racism began to retreat with the rise of the civil rights movement, the human rights movement, the genocide petition, et cetera, because anti-Blackness and anti-Jewish fervor tended to be linked. And so now, once again, we're going through a real life experiment <laughs> because right now in the United States of America, uh, I'm afraid to say that is not only is anti-Black racism in, on the march, anti-Jewish fervor is on the march as well. And what's striking about that latter phenomenon is that you have, I'm afraid to say, a number of Jewish Americans who are not aware of the linkage. And so on the one hand, they join because they're defined as quote white, unquote. So on the one hand, they oftentimes, some of them join the anti-Blackness campaign. And then they don't understand why the anti-Jewish campaign begins to rise. It reminds me of someone who uses uh, some sort of face cream to get rid of a blemish on their face. And they keep applying the cream and the blemish tends to grow. They don't realize that the so-called cream is actually increasing the blemish. And that's the kind of dilemma we're now faced with, I'm afraid to say, in the United States of America.
Maybe we can talk about the civil rights movement because I know in civil rights movement, like I'm a huge fan of like Ella Baker and I had like read books about Ella uh, and SNCC and so on. Uh, but there was, you know, sort of anti-communism within that. Like Ella has communist friends and she's sort of, she's an ant, sort of an anti-communist, but like her friends are communists. And there's this constant like pressure on her to not be friends with them anymore. And there is this like, dynamic that civil rights didn't want to have that communism uh, be associated because that would they thought that that would go against their movement or they would not be able to achieve as much with the U.S. government. Maybe we can talk about like the internal dynamics with within um, sort of communist socialists and liberals within the within the black movement. Yeah, it's very complicated. Um... Anti-communism was very strong, <laughs> to put it mildly, in the United States of America. I, I have this hypothesis that one of the reasons goes back to the U.S. Civil War, because what happens is that when slavery was abolished, slave property was the most valuable property in the United States in 1861, more valuable than the mines, the manufacturing plants, agriculture, everything. And yet, by 1865, this property had been nullified, and the owners of the property were not compensated. In the British Caribbean, Jamaica, Barbados, Antigua, etc., when slavery was abolished, the slave owners were compensated. In fact, the London was still paying off the families of the slave owners as recently as a few years ago. Now, let's not talk about compensating the enslaved and their, their descendants. Of course, that did not arise. And so with the nullification of this property, it infuriated <laughs> the folks who became poverty-stricken. They were once wealthy, then they lost everything <laughs> because their property was taken by the government. And so this helps to uh, accelerate anti-government hysteria, which you still have in this country. That was part of the ethos of Ronald Reagan, the US president in the 1980s. The government is the problem. But also you can connect it to 1917 because socialism was associated with the seizure of private property without compensation. And once that happened in the United States, it really helped to generate considerable anti-communism because pe many people saw a replay of 1865 when billions of dollars in property were taken without compensation. So anti-communism has been very strong in this country. And then the anti-communism has been reinforced by waves of immigration. Whenever you have a socialist revolution, the folks who are on the losing side come to the United States, like Cuba, for example. After the socialist revolution in Cuba in 1959, the losers, they migrate to Miami and then they're still campaigning against socialism. They're still campaigning on an anti-communist basis. Same happens in Vietnam. Those folks move to Texas. They move to Southern California. And so it reinforces an already existing anti-communism. And this influences the civil rights movement. This influences 
the movement against U.S. apartheid and Jim Crow, uh, many of our friends in the social democratic movement and the socialist movement, liberals, they're deeply influenced by anti-communism. Uh, I can mention personalities. I don't know if they'll have any meaning, but I mean, for example, one of the top black trade union leaders, A. Philip Randolph, uh, for example, he was a socialist oriented. He was deeply anti-communist. And so this handicapped the movement because it led to fractures in the movement that our enemies could manipulate. And our enemies did manipulate those fractures in the movement, these tensions between those who were anti-communists and those who were not anti-communists. And hopefully we'll be able to avoid that uh, anti-communism in the future. Although if you are pessimistic about that, I understand. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up because um, uh, in Georgia with, uh, so Georgia joined uh, the Russian empire, parts of it did at first, you know, cause Georgia didn't exist as Georgia. It was like different territories. Russian empire asked to be, asked to be annexed because they were fighting with, you know, Ottomans and so on. Um, and so they then Russian empire, you know, freed the serfs and the entire economy in Georgia was, you know, serfdom. Like, and so the, um, you know, the nobles, they got really upset with the Russian empire because they were like, wait a minute, you're taking away our entire economy. You know, like this, these lands, this is the only way we know how to make money. And the cities, well, the main city, Tbilisi, was controlled by mostly Armenians and some Russian soldiers and some Russian bureaucrats. And Armenians were the ones had been, you know, merchants. So they sort of were able to become bourgeoisie very quickly and like put up, you know, get a footing, you know, a, a foothold and be able to, you know, have all these factories and so on and like survive this, like no, you know, no serfdom. But the Russian countryside, I mean, sorry, the Georgian countryside sort of collapsed. And there was all these like nobles that didn't have lands or had, had to like sell out the lands because they were in debt. And they couldn't make money and they didn't know how to do this capitalism. They just like really, you know, foundered. Um, and that was a lot of the resentment at first came from that. And a lot of the um, um, revolutionaries come from, uh, there's like two wings. The liberal wing is the ones who were like the higher nobles that became like the liberals who wanted to change and criticize the Russian empire. And then there was the socialists who came from either the, the, the priestly class, kind of like the ones who were priests and so on, or they were like low-ranking nobles or gentry, or you know, like a little had like little plots of land in, in that countryside. And there was one area particularly that had like the worst land that you couldn't produce much, and they created the most revolutionaries. <laughs> and so that interesting because it kind of has this parallel where these outside forces, like the North, came in. You know, in the case of the U.S. Well, Russian empire, you know, came in and like got rid of their, you know, hundreds of years of this economy they had set up, you know, slaves or serfs. And they really weren't, they weren't compensated either. They mostly actually went into debt and had to be, were in debt with, to the Russian empire. So a lot of that other um, resentment was building up, you know, though actually they were still more loyal and still took 
all the ones who didn't have any ties, didn't have land to become the revolutionaries like Stalin. And, you know, we have tons of other social Democrats, like the strongest social Democrats also came from Georgia, all coming from lower, lower classes, actually. Um, but that just kind of reminded me. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a very interesting parallel. And see, the, the, the problem in the United States, <laughs> amongst others, is that because of the deep anti-communism, that also means that there is a prejudice against materialist analysis, the sort of analysis that you just did. <laughs> and so if you don't have a materialist analysis of history, well, then how can you make a diagnosis of the problem and how can you make a prescription to remedy the problem? And that's one of the issues we have here because there's a lot of um, fantasy when it comes to the history of the United States. There's a lot of philosophical idealism when it comes to the United States. I mean, right now, believe it or not, <laughs> a, a major debate that is shaping electoral outcomes is whether or not you see slavery and dispossession of the indigenous population, the Native American population, the Indians, whether you see that as being incidental or irrelevant or not in accord with the glowing founding ideals of the United States. That, in fact, that particular position, I think it's fair to say, is the position of tens of millions of people. And then you have another group that says, no, slavery was central to the political economy of the United States. As I said, it was the major investment as of 1860, that obviously <laughs> when you dispossess the Native Americans of their land and basically liquidate the Native Americans, they're subjected to genocide. That's hardly irrelevant. You, you must see that as being central to this entire enterprise here in North America. But many people get upset when you try to bring forward the facts. They prefer fantasy to reality. And they feel that the United States position abroad is compromised if you put forward a true and accurate version of US history. Because how, how can US propaganda work in Georgia if people are being told that the country was based upon slavery and genocide? <laughs> you have to make people feel that no, the country was based on these glowing ideals of liberty and freedom and justice for all. And that's part of the problem right now. You know, I was going to say that um, it's been interesting to just kind of connect what you just said now yeah. to something you mentioned earlier, which is that it was, it's been very interesting to study recently the active uh, political struggle that the United States engaged in to try to frame the Soviet Union as the true imperialist. And this, this accusation, usually initially through the UN, which is why this UN um, 
petition about, you know, charging genocide against the United States was so interesting for me to read because throughout the 1950s, as the, you know, uh, anti-colonial struggles are taking, are, are, are emerging uh, in the decolonizing world, the United States is trying to, you know, curry favor with them and say, no, 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 the true imperialist are, is the Soviet Union. And then you have allies in the United States with the United States government um, who are these immigre losers you mentioned, right? The anti-communists who are actually doing, putting a lot of energy into trying to get their positions um, through congressional hearings, turned into reports that are then used on the UN floor to be able to accuse the United States or the uh, Soviet Union as the true imperialist. And there's this whole accusation Not of- Not just imperialist, but a genocidal- A genocidal you know, imperialist. They're, totalitarian, or, or what they would mass use, murdering. Or what they would use is this term red colonialism. And I just want to say one, one quick thing about um, to connect Georgia to all of this, which is really important, is that you know Georgians in the Soviet period had this very the only word I can use is privileged position in terms of the disproportionate representation at all levels of the Soviet state, the general economic uh, position of the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic, um, how important the Georgians were. Not only was Stalin himself Georgian, but others, you know, throughout the the, the higher rungs of the Soviet state. Um, and it's it's interesting how then the anti-communist narratives that emerge will take from the experience of a place like, you know, Lithuania or Latvia because of them being annexed after World War II. So the nationalists there who had sided with the Third Reich, you know, are, are very um, prominent in exile saying that our country was was uh, annexed by the Soviet Union. Again. And then this, and then this but narrative with the agreement of the West, <laughs> of course, with the agreement of the West. But I mean, I'm just saying that they will use take this narrative of annexation and say, well, we were annexed. Our real nation was annexed. You know, uh, Ukraine, Ukrainians, Georgians, others who were actually central to the construction of the Soviet state will then, you know, use these experiences of others to then try to, um, uh, as a narrative to lobby the West. And this becomes really important in the anti-communist nationalism of the post-Soviet world. And I just think it's interesting how to make those claims, one has to erase everything that you just said, right? The real imperialism and the colonialism of the West, which are taken to be uh, benevolent or non-existent. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> as we speak, as a matter of fact, as soon as I finish our discussion, I'll return to writing a book about Texas. And what's interesting about Texas, among other things, which is now the second most populous state behind California in the United States, if it were a country, it would have one of the 20th, 20 largest economies on planet Earth, is that the elite in Texas in the 19th century intentionally and consciously embarked upon a plan of quote, extermination, unquote. I mean, that was their term, not mine. Extermination of the indigenous population because they were confronting some of the most militant and well-armed and well and, and great fighters, in particular the people we call the Comanches. And they basically drowned the Native Americans in blood. It was genocide by, by any stretch of the imagination. But you're not supposed to bring that up because, or if you do bring it up, you have to say, 
it was contrary to our founding ideals. I mean, it, it's like the, the thief who's caught and taken before the judge. And he says, judge, what I did was contrary to my founding ideals. You, you should let me go. You shouldn't send me to jail. I mean, th th this is nonsense. And when you were talking about the experience of the former Soviet republics, I was thinking of the propaganda that I'd lived through uh, during the Cold War, uh, propaganda about captive nations, for example. You would have these uh, ceremonies about the Captive Nations Week or Captive Nations Month, where the socialist republics and their allies were seen as in chains, uh, for example. And then there's the famous speech by the uh, British imperialists of uh, Winston Churchill in Missouri in 1946, where he talks about the Iron Curtain uh, coming down across Eastern Europe and all the people are in chains and handcuffed. But what's interesting about the United States is that at least thus far, you have that propaganda. But when you were talking about Georgia, I was thinking about, I was thinking of this book by a US scholar who's a mainstream scholar, not a left-wing scholar, uh, Terry Martin. And the book is about, you know, the book about affirmative action in um, the socialist camp. Yeah, I've read this book. Yeah, I mean, and so what's interesting, it, it dovetails with what you're saying about the privileged position of Georgia's. It was sort of a reflection of this kind of affirmative action. But of course, <laughs> that exists. That book can be published in the United States. The problem is people don't basically know about it. That's what happens in the United States. You, you can get a lot of stuff published, <laughs> but it doesn't get any sort of dissemination. Uh, I mean, th there are two or three different conversations taking place. There is the mainstream right-wing propaganda conversation, and then there can be an intelligent conversation among scholars and intellectuals. Now, I'm not sure how that how long that dichotomy can exist, but thus far, it is existing. Let's see how long it lasts. You know, uh, when you were discussing, when we were just talking about um, having a materialist analysis, you know, what I really love about the Scottsboro case is that two white women, the Communist Party didn't like cancel them and call them racist or whatever would happen now, probably in this like liberal way. Because they were like, oh, they're really poor, sort of like poor white trash who were going to get probably go to jail because they were clearly sex workers and they decided to get out of this in the most easiest racist way possible. Right. Um, and then the Communist Party turned one of them communists who then you know recanted her story and actually lobbied for the release, which I find is the most I don't know, like absurd in a good way kind of situation, right? Of that actually happening. Like, what are the chances of that happening? Because the Communist Party like didn't give give up on her in the same in the way that maybe like somebody else would have, you know? Because they understood that she was white. She used her sort of white whiteness to do what she did, but she also was very poor, coming from you know very precarious condition herself. Well, what you're reminding me of, if, if I may, <laughs> is, is my book on the 16th century, where I get into the origins of this concept of whiteness, which is in historical terms, relatively recent. And it grows out of religion. Uh, 
that is to say that the Spanish or the people we call the Spanish, they had a first mover's advantage because they sponsored Christopher Columbus in 1492, which is why uh, many of the people south of the United States are speaking Spanish or they speak Portuguese because their comrades in Portugal uh, were allied with them. And what happens is that London wants to get in on this new banquet of exploitation. The ostensible reason for London and Henry VIII breaking with the Catholic Church and embarking on the road of the Protestant faith, recall that Martin Luther in 1517 had broken away from the Protestant Church, but it was still a relatively small sect but Henry VIII in London allies with that, supposedly because he couldn't get a divorce, but actually it was because, once again, a materialist analysis, the Catholic Church was a major property owner. And by breaking with the Catholic Church, he was able to take a good deal of their property, which gives the English economy a liftoff. But at the same time, they have a disadvantage because the Catholics are so powerful. So what happens is that basically the Protestant English cut a deal with the major foe of the Catholics, which is the Ottoman Turks. Uh, a good deal of the wealth taken from uh, the Catholics in the British Isles is actually shipped to the Ottoman Turks. And they begin a squeeze play against the Spanish in particular. And so what happens is that also the Protestants who don't have enough bodies to embark upon settler colonialism, in a sense, they stumble onto this concept of whiteness. They had been warring English versus Irish, English versus Scots, English versus Welsh, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian. All of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic under London's rule, they become white. Now, this is obviously very advantageous for settler colonialism. It gives them more bodies to confront the Native Americans, to keep the enslaved Africans in line. And it also helps to create this, this notion of whiteness, uh, which gives you a certain kind of privilege. And what's interesting about whiteness <laughs> is that it's so flexible. I mean, for example, you have Lebanese, it's not just all Europeans, even though I oftentimes use the term Euro-American, a leading politician in this country, uh, Ralph Nader, he's Lebanese Christian, for example. You have Iranian Jewish folk in Los Angeles who are considered to be white, unquote. I would imagine that Georgians are considered to be white, unquote. It's, it's a very flexible concept, but it's so wholly and totally inflexible when it comes to a person like myself. There's no way I can be defined as white, for example. It's a very rigid politics. And what's also interesting, since it grows out of religion, there's a certain kind of faith that's involved with regard to this concept. I mean, for example, I recently wrote an article where I talked about how in the 1500s, you had a Catholic's burning Protestants at the stake. By the end of the 1800s, you have Catholics and Protestants joining hands to burn black people at the stake, basically. That's what lynching was all about. Uh, 
That's what the Scottsboro Nine would have been subjected to. So there's a, there's a certain kind of religious fervor that's at the heart of this new product, project of race, this new project of whiteness that makes it very difficult to combat, makes it very difficult to eliminate, just like I would not necessarily recommend in 2021 that you embark on a crusade to eliminate religion. So actually whiteness, <laughs> otherwise known as being European here and not Asian in Georgia, that's like the whole story, um, this obsession with everyone sort of self, well, self, well, self-colonialism really, but it's like the government opposition, everyone talks, this, this rhetoric is let's not be Asiatic, right? Let's be European, right? So everything civilized, good, rule of law, you know, good institutions, everything. It must be white, European. They don't say the word white, it's just European, but you know what that, that means. And everything backward is Asiatic. And so there's this constant war, sort of two souls that will try to make this poetic, you know, two souls. Oh, you sound like the boys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. exactly. You know, with, and who's, what's going to win the identity of Georgian, this Asiatic and this like, we had a recent argument with Estonian former Estonian prime minister said the Georgians were recently becoming who were an exception among the Asiatic despots, right? We were an exception, but clearly we have shown our Asianness recently, and then EU should no longer pay for, to have a presence here. Because just to just to add, just to sorry, just to add one and, thing. Sorry, to punish us for our Asianness. I mean, it is so mm. insane. I can't. Just to add to one thing that um, Sopa was saying was that you know there's this uh, yeah accusation that the Soviet Union. And then after the Soviet Union, these quote unquote sort of like vestiges of the Soviet Union are the reason for sort of the quote unquote backwardness of the post-Soviet world. But what was interesting is actually that um, we, we just did an interview with two scholars who wrote a book about the collapse of communism called Taking Stock of Shock, right? By two professors at the University of Pennsylvania. And what they had actually found by aggregating all of the data about the social consequences of the collapse of communism was that pretty much the majority of people were facing negative consequences, even the ones and the ones that faced really bad consequences tended to be the places that had really harsh westernization policies and not a methodical attempt to like, quote unquote, transition slowly. Right. So those who were the most extreme pro-Western were actually the ones that were creating the most problems domestically. So this this accusation of being backward vestiges of the Asiatic Soviet period um, are in some ways the things that were helping uh, mitigate the worst um, uh, shock therapy, uh, the consequences of the shock therapy. So. I have a question for you, uh, particularly in light of this discourse about Europeanness versus Asianness, so-called. In the United States right now, there's a lot of hysteria about China. As I said, you know, you, you have people in power who are talking about launching a war and, and potentially blowing up the world because they're concerned that China is in the passing lane and that this planet is headed to an age of Chinese ascendancy and Asian ascendancy. And of course, there's little discussion 
about how that was assisted into being by the early 1970s deal between President Nixon and the Chinese leadership, where in return for um, China signing on to anti-Sovietism, you had entire manufacturing plants that floated across the Pacific, turning China into the factory floor of the world and turbocharging its economy. There's hardly any discussion of that, but there is a discussion of wanting to get rid of China. And so my question is, people in Georgia must be aware. I assume that there's Chinese investment in Georgia. I assume that there's Asian investment in Georgia. So how can they maintain this idea of Asian means backward when in the United States, their patron, there's this hysteria about China in the passing lane? How is that reconciled? I think uh, in general, so the, the current government, which isn't, which is pro-EU, NATO, everything, but but not enough because they're not screaming at the top of their lungs that Putin is a dictator and that China is horrible, right? So like, so I realized it wasn't enough for the US or, or Western partners. Well, actually, I would say EU is actually a lot more sane than the US part. Um, it's not enough for them, right? They need to see more, you know, prove, like they have to prove themselves. They mm-hmm. really are pro-US. You know, they don't say bad enough things about Putin. So they must be cr- secretly pro-Putin, even though at the center of town, we have a NATO office, right? And it's like NATO flags everywhere. And like the government's constantly pledging their allegiance to, to, you know, Europe, but not enough. But like, for example, you know, I'm a labor leader here. That's why I was asking about your labor law, um, your background. But like, I was part of, we did like a protest when Chinese work, Chinese company came and beat up Georgian workers. Uh, and then we had this like protests, which we, because we controlled it, we refused to make it xenophobic, right? We controlled, even though all these Georgians came and they were like, these dog eaters. And, you know, like they were saying really racist stuff, right? Trying to make it like all race thing. And we were like, no, this is just like impunity by employer everywhere because there's no laws and so on. And then we have another case of an American company that hasn't given over two years, has not given salaries to their workers, let them go whenever they complained. And I couldn't get anybody interested in it, right? So an American company does something. Oh, but they couldn't possibly be bad. They even had this company bought a few senators and congressmen, and then the few senators kind of wrote letters saying that the, to the government here, how dare they even even go to mediation over court over uh, other things that the company had done for years now. It was like a pump and dump scheme. It was a terrible company. And so to try to pressure the Georgian government was like, they're clearly disavowing their American values and their liberal values by trying to like bring bring to accountability now after 30 years of this company doing horrible things, you know? And so it's just, this is the stuff that happens, right? So like if, if that company is uh, not, not white, right, then people are much more likely to accept the labor violations that really happened. If the company is owned by European or owned by American, we cannot get any traction. No one believes us. That's amazing. And and I should amend uh, a statement that I made a few moments ago, because it just occurred to me that the leader of the U.S. military a few years ago was of Georgian origin. I can't recall his name. 
What was his name? Shalikashvili. Exactly. Yeah. Not Sakashvili. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> Obama. Obama used his name, I remember, like said his name like a hundred times during one of the yeah, debates. Yeah, like yeah. he's with me, Shalikashvili backs me. Yeah. yeah. So th th that's really going to be a dilemma because we face the same problem here. I mean, believe it or not, because of the ideological backsliding in this country, you have many black people who they would say that part of their mother's milk is being against white supremacy. That's their official point of view. However, some of them are willing to go to war against China. I mean, believe it or not, you would think that they would be less susceptible to this national chauvinism. But of course, they don't really have the ideological rigor to understand and be swept along by, by the tide. And that's one of the very uh, severe problems that we're facing right now. I'm not convinced that the American Communist Party is seriously interested in liberation of black people, uh, that it uses black people for its own ends. Uh, what, what do you say to that? Now, you talk about the Communist Party as if it's something that's separate and apart for black people. There are a lot of black people in the party. The chairman of the Communist Party is a black man who spent... Uh, years of his life in prison and is blind at this point because of uh, the grossly inadequate, inadequate medical treatment he received in uh, prison. Um, I think that if you would seriously study both the policy of the Communist Party with respect to black liberation and the history of the party in terms of its activities within the black liberation struggle, that it would, wouldn't be possible to make that kind of statement that, that you're making. 